0: You're watching Global Trade this week with Pete Mento and Doug
1: Draper. Welcome to another episode of Global Trade Your Week. My name is uh, Doug Draper, and I am your uh, your host. Mr. Pete Mento usually pops us on the other side of the United States in uh, New Hampshire, but he is on assignment. Not quite sure exactly what that means. But Keenan is gonna fill in for us today. so not only producer, but uh, host of the show. So Keenan, thanks for bumping on, my man.
0: Well, thank you. It's always great wearing multiple hats and I'm excited about our topics here today.
1: Yeah, that is good. That's good. So with that being said, I think we just jump into it. I think you and I talked about a speed round for this uh, for this global trade this week. So let's just start hammering it out, man.
0: Absolutely. And so my first topic is something we've discussed on the show previously as a growing threat. But the news here today, uh, Monday, October tenth, 2022, um, we are experiencing cyber attacks hitting several major US airports uh, today as we speak. Now, fortunately, it does not appear that Transportation security operations or air traffic control are actually being affected by this cyber attack. It seems to be much more of a distributed denial of service type attack on the websites of these airports themselves. So there probably are a lot of inconveniences happening on the passenger side as people are trying to check in or check and see what wait times are all the information of, um, you know, local affairs as you're getting to an airport seems like a lot of those are being disrupted today. Um, So far not the actual operations of the planes themselves, which is good for safety and for the flow of economic goods. But it does point to the fact that they are targets. And, you know, uh, DDoS, as it's called, or distributed denial of service, is a relatively low-tech cyber attack. The idea, for people who aren't familiar, is that... Um, when you have a computer and you call to a website, it takes a little bit of time and a little bit of resources for them on the server side to say, hey, Keenan wants to go to the website here, we'll serve the website. But you can very easily with programs you buy off the dark web or just write a very simple Python script, uh, deny other people that service by just war dialing calling over and over and over for that information. So if I set up a script and go to, you know, Denver DIA's website and just tell it to ping 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 ping, ping then when you as a legitimate customer try to go to that website, you're in a long list of queue that a bunch of fake requests are in front of and so mm-hmm. you may just get a website not available type of situation. So it's something that is still a relevant it's still a relevant threat and it has impacted company stocks in the past and different things. Um, but it's not so bad as like a zero day on the back end system shutting down or it's not one of those malware, we shut out all the airport systems. It's just the websites on the public facing side are kind of being impacted. So yeah, what are your initial thoughts on cybersecurity and not being able to go to some of these websites here so far today?
1: Yeah, well, I, I love the fact that all of our um, we're work- topics are topical and timely maybe that's a better better word and and uh, Pete will give you a thumbs up because he's all into the cybersecurity piece so good good call on a topic you know my my take um, i guess it's twofold is that are there going to be minimal cyber attacks attacks i use in quotes like what you described to the point where people just become numb Right. Um, hey, I'm aware that there's an attack. It's just inconvenient. I'll log off. They'll fix it in an hour or something, and then I'll mm-hmm. go back on. Are we going to become numb to the point where we don't really pay attention to something that is a cat? You know, a much larger type of thing where it's, where it's the uh, navigation systems at the airport. So I'm thinking, you know what? It's talked about a lot. You get a lot of these little ones that are inconvenient. Um, do we become numb? And I'll uh, put our, our guard down a little bit when something catastrophic could happen. I think that's a great insight, of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other piece that kind of is interesting is that even with an inconvenience like this, and maybe the inconvenience could stay for a longer duration uh, or slight other inconvenience, that can impact stock price, right? So um, is it not, it, you know, I might ping it for a day or two and things of that nature, but I don't see and. Let I me mean, preface this by saying I don't follow the stock market in relation to what cybersecurity attacks do directly. But I could see it taking a blip where in this day and age, people just blow up, um, you know, the uh, the social media and the socials to say, I'm having trouble. Yeah, I did, too. And all of a sudden, the stock drops for a couple of days or a day. Um, so I think those two things are real as far as implications. But I'm more worried about people become numb and, um, and unaware uh, and to lose our guard when it comes to uh, to bigger things, specifically the navigation systems of uh, the airports.
0: I think you're right. We as a society, we're all kind of learning about this new world with websites and cyber attacks and different things. And I think both of your points are legitimate. There definitely have been cases of bad actors playing the market at the same time of them doing some of these attacks and especially if it's timed with like a new product launch or something you could make a pretty big swing and if you're trading options you could capitalize on a relatively small swing with a lot of money though i think in our everyday practice back to your first point we are sort of becoming numb i mean we're talking about it here and it's a big deal but i'm not anticipating seeing this in too many news articles um they'll just fix it to your point there's a whole industry now of all right we'll switch our servers our ip addresses we'll we'll counter this particular inconvenient attack and get back up and going um and people do kind of get complacent about it this one's not that bad though i have seen examples of attacks that do impact company stocks and then i've also seen pretty bad hacks worse than this website DDoS attack, like, you know, stealing all of let's say Lowe's. I'm just making this example up, but maybe it was a Home Depot or a target several years ago, did have Mm -hmm. millions of customer credit card information stolen. And some of those have played out on the stock market. But some of those big ones haven't even made a blip. I think sometimes investors either don't know or also just kind of get complacent of Oh, it's another attack. Is this one like going to really change anything? Where it's like wow that stock didn't move at all and that was a major attack and so i think we're all trying to learn how do we protect ourselves what does this actually mean for valuations of business and maybe that's a good thing people aren't overreacting to some of these but we got to stay vigilant because besides just this being a timely topic here today, this has been a threat we've talked about in the past. And undoubtedly, there will be disruptions in the future. How do we prepare for them? So everyone stay sharp out there, do your job, be careful on uh, uh, clicking suspicious links in your texts or your emails, do the right thing for your company. And if all of us do that, we'll have a more robust transportation system as a whole.
1: Nice. I love that. That's a, (laughs) that's a, uh, but PSA, public service announcement, you just that's dropped right. on—that's that's awesome. Yeah,
0: that's just cool. with your first topic.
1: So my first topic is um, is packaging kind of the secret sauce related to parcel efficiency, and it it kind of comes around uh, with some of the um, discussions with rate increases, the monumental rate increases, but. First, I know that all of us at some point have ordered something online. It could be through Amazon or other retailers. It doesn't really matter the the origin where you get this box that's like five times larger than what the product is, and it's got tons of paper and packaging and um other than um you know uh people taking to social media and taking a picture you know and posting on like next door or something complaining about it. people say, "Yeah, I've had that experience before, and then they break the box down and Hopefully they recycle it or just throw it away and that, that's the end of it. But I think um, there is a tremendous opportunity with not only the efficiency of the throughput, um, how a package literally moves through the automated source system, how it's loaded on a truck or a plane to get it there. And people don't think um, really about that. I know that, that UPS and FedEx have, you know, over-dimensional OS and D or, or over-dimensional things that, hey, it can't move it down the belts. So I think the smaller, tighter the shipment is, the more efficient it's going to be. And then with, um, you know, these rate increases that the parcel carriers are starting to come out with, uh, you want your footprint moving through their system as small as possible. And so my whole point in this thing is I think on-site, end-of-line, like end-of-production line, and on-demand packaging uh, to right-size the box is um, going to gain a lot of momentum. So you know, think of something coming out the box that looks like a, um, uh, we play this game at my house called, is it bigger than a bread box? And then you just got to go through a bunch of stuff and figure out what the, what the item is that that uh, the other person's thinking of. So I'll use bread box as an example, right? Or shoe box. Um, it goes through the system and you don't have to have the same box for that versus a, a jewelry case or something right. like that. So it comes off the end of the line, the box just hugs it, shrinks it, puts whatever, um, uh, uh, packaging needed around it, and it goes out. So it's not like here's our 15 box sizes that we'll try to fit everything in. Here's the unique packaging size and requirement to protect it on a transactional, case-by-case basis. So um, I think that has a huge amount of potential for um, you know a couple different reasons. Like I said, parcels getting more expensive. The smaller your footprint, the cheaper it's going to be. Um, I know that there's some talk about UPS um, uh, reducing their uh, partnership with Amazon. Then you can read other stories that say Amazon is reducing their footprint with UPS. Nothing's materialized; just just conjecture right now. But there's some uncertainty in the number of carriers and how they will be moving your products. And I think the environmental piece of it is huge, right? Um, if you have a, uh, a retailer <clears throat> that comes up with some uh, uh, ingenious packaging. Uh, and you can, uh, you know, brand it appropriately. I think that the, the environmental impact, um, perception from the customer and the reality of putting less into our landfills is, uh, is, is key. And I think there's some marketing and message branding that you could do on demand. If you got a machine that can right size the packaging on an order by order basis, I guarantee they can, you know, blast, a. um, a marketing piece or a QR code or something on that packaging as well. So my whole point in this keynote is I think the packaging aspect to help uh, manage parcel efficiencies. We're going to see some cool stuff. I know some of it already exists. Um, So if you're aware of that, please uh, ping us um, as you listen to the show into the comments field. But I think that's going to draw a lot more attention in the upcoming year than than you and I have seen in the past.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. right. I think there are some of those things out already. And we're probably going to see a lot more of it, you know, just as a consumer, some examples that come to mind are Amazon packages where, you know, they try to bundle all your orders into the same box if they can try to make it a little bit more efficient for economic reasons, as well as carbon reasons, which I don't know if they've been advertising yet, but someone will be talking about that because it does overlap. If you can right size the parcel package for the shipment moving, you're going to be having better economic returns, as well as less wasted space, less um, carbon going unnecessarily. And so um, Marketing departments will probably use that as a a way of differentiating or look what we're doing, we're saving you money and saving the environment. Also check out what's now streaming on Amazon Prime, you know, they have some of that custom tape, as Amazon does a lot of their packaging, and they're starting to utilize that retail space or that um, marketing space, we'll probably see more of that. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see who the players are and what they decide to do with it, right size the package and make things more efficient and a little cleaner.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking, just when you made one of those comments, Keenan, is that, um, you know, the warehouse situation that we're in, the craziness in order to provide using the example I gave of 12 different box sizes, in order to have enough of each one of those box uh, boxes, the amount of warehouse space involved to mass produce 30,000 box A, 30,000 box B, and then having to warehouse it and then having to ship it to the destination, Um, efficiencies, carbon footprint, things of that nature. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, ways you could uh, look at this for for a benefit financially and for the consumer.
0: Great points. We'll be uh, keeping an eye on it, as I'm sure we'll be seeing more and more of this stuff come down the pipe. Um, yeah. Go ahead and kick us off into halftime here.
1: Yeah, of course. I don't know if we've ever hit halftime before like the 15-minute mark. <laughs> Keenan. That's why we're rocking and rolling. I love it. I love it. But as you know, uh, halftime is brought to you by Cap Logistics. Um, please visit their website at caplogistics.com for all your supply chain and logistics needs. We wouldn't be here, Pete and I, Keenan, without the support of those guys. So uh, take a look at them. They can do for your uh, logistic needs. All right, man. Here's the um, here's the halftime, and I, I probably butcher this a little bit. And I just saw it pop up um, on LinkedIn uh, yesterday, so some of our viewers may have seen this. Um, but it's related to uh, a history lesson last year or last week. It was financial advice. This week, it's a history lesson, uh, global trade this week style, and it's essentially why is the railroad? Why is the gauge between the two? Um, a rails, four feet, eight and a half inches wide. And um, it kind of goes through and we're just going to kind of rewind, right? So here in the U.S., they're four foot, eight and a half inches wide um, because whenever the rail industry happened here in the U.S., a lot of uh, engineers and resources were used from England to help us build it. So that's kind of what uh, England use, uh, used as far as a gauge. So the next question is, well, why did England use four feet, eight and a half inches, um, because it was the gauge of the initial tramways, which is the predecessor to the traditional rail that that, uh, that you and I know. And that's relevant because the hand tools and the other equipment used um, to go from the tramways to the rail were the same. So everything's already set up. Let's just plug it in and, and, and use the same. But then the question is, um, all right, well, then why were the tramways at four and a half and that's because wagons, um, just keep rewinding with me, Keenan, follow along, right? Um, the wagons were built at four feet, eight and a half inches wide because the wheels of those wagons would break and the axles would break because it just would. Because if they weren't in the ruts that were created from the infrastructure from years ago, they would break. And so they're like, well, we'll just build everything to fit into these ruts that are already in existence. So uh, we can move travel. And the next question is, well, why are those ruts four foot eight and a half inches? Um, this is the paradigm shift here, man, is that the, not the paradigm shift, but the interesting piece is that um, those roads were initially built by the Roman Empire and the infrastructure that they had. Um, and the reason that they had those roads is because they were out conquering the world and they needed to have their chariots and their war horses all hooked up and um you know and right across uh the european continent and beyond and so all right that's cool so why the chariots why are they four foot eight and a half wide it's because that's exactly the width of two horses so if you measure the backside of two horses they needed them together not not one in front of the other but in tandem in order to have the war horse mentality and that's exactly how far it was across so You think about why the rails in the U.S. of A. are four feet, eight and a half inches wide. It all goes back to the Roman Empire um, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago. So that's awesome. Yeah, I saw that and I'm like, man, what am I going to do for halftime? History lesson. Our people come here for knowledge, Keenan, and I just drop some on them.
0: That was great. I love seeing the connections of where we are today and how that happened throughout time. Um, As you were describing that, you reminded me of a great uh, BBC series. I think it was in the 70s called Connections with James Burke. And he would do that talk about different industry or technology and kind of reverse Throughout history of why we ended up with the way things are today from where they were. And sometimes there's really good reasons the whole way through, but more often than not, it's a little bit of happenstance or because the Roman Empire did their horses this way, the roads were this wide. And later, much later in the UK, that led to this size roads or this size trolleys. And then you end up getting network effects where, to your point, once the tooling's a certain way or once some of the ro- railroads in America are certain width, it makes sense to have them all standardized because then you can have the same equipment go on to different rails or the same equipment build or fix different rail systems. So there's that network effect that often leads to one standard.
1: Yeah. Love it. I love it. So um well, hey, I'm gonna jump into my second topic. All right. Um and this is um, my thought. We're always forward forward leaning on the show here. So I'm going to kind of step out on a little bit of a, of a ledge here. But the question I pose is, do we have too much excess air capacity uh, in our supply chain right now? And I think that the answer to that may not be right this second, but we're trending towards that. Um, I think during the supply chain chaos, you saw... Um, so much stuff sitting and so much demand for air freight to get product to where it needs to be quickly so that consumers can, can purchase it or the item can be used in final manufacturing. Um, is it the acquisition of aircraft, um, whether it's gaining access or acquiring additional planes to support um, you know, another uh, service offering just exploded. We've talked about large companies buying more assets. We've, we've talked about um, purchase orders. Airbus, Boeing that are out there and repurposing aircraft, flipping aircraft from uh, passenger to cargo only. So I, I think that we are going to be in an excess capacity, a um, worldwide recession that's on the brink, or maybe we're already in it, I think it's going to ground a lot of equipment. Uh, I think that's going to result in selling off of assets or at least decommissioning them and parking them out somewhere in the Mojave Desert. Um so if you're looking to buy some aging equipment, um, I think you're going to have a fire sale coming up. Um, and like I mentioned, uh, I think there's a lot of uh, new orders on planes. Is that the new planes don't go into cargo, right? They bring on the new planes for the commercial use um, and, and air travel humans. And then they kind of move the, uh, the older freight down, uh, the older aircraft down to freight carriers. So I, I, I think we're going to see excess capacity. And that there's going to be uh, a lot of market um, shifting of those assets. And I don't think it's happening now, but I think it will happen next year. And so um, that's kind of my take. The other half I was just thinking about literally while while I was talking about this, Keenan, is that, well, maybe high fuel prices, the war in Ukraine, um, the parity in currency values with the dollar, maybe that'll stave off the overcapacity and um, we'll be able to you know, manipulate the volume. But um, it's not quite like OPEC or the steam steamship industry where they can pull things out of uh, rotation to uh, increase their profit margins. There's a little bit more regulatory piece behind it. But anyway, um, my, my whole take on this is I think we're heading towards excess capacity in the air freight market. We're going to see it uh, after this holiday season.
0: Yeah, I think you're right on. There are those cycles where There's a shortage of ability to move things during pandemic with various challenges, new orders being made. I'm pretty sure Boeing had a a long list of orders to fulfill before the pandemic. Then during the pandemic, as regular supply chains broke down, you needed more and more air freight to try to fix the supply chains. And then there has been more brought on. And so now uh, we're seeing softening. And that kind of leads into my next topic here. Um, FedEx is uh, moving down its... Projections for the holiday traffic season, and so they're okay. citing macroeconomic forces. Uh, you know, employment still relatively low, but a lot of people are um, feeling pinches in various forms or another right now economically. Um, this kind of ties into previous topics we've talked about, where there's supply already in warehouses, already on storefronts, and so those companies clearing out that supply are lowering prices. Uh, consumers in tight financial times are probably going to be buying a cheap TV rather than the newest, latest and greatest something else that needs to be shipped. So it seems FedEx like others are seeing a little bit of softening on that demand side. But that ties into to what you're talking about. The hits uh, the capacity side too. So um, I know Pete would know more about maritime construction and those ships but things like ships things like planes take longer to build longer to get into commission than some of the other economic forces like finance and uh, rate changes and demand those things move quicker and so you end up getting some lag in the pendulum back and forth of undersupplied on the air cargo side oversupplied on the air cargo side and i think you're right we're going to be seeing the swing back down where maybe there's too much air capacity right now and there will be some fire sales if anyone's in the market for a couple decade old uh boeing 737 that's been <laughs> rigged to cargo uh who knows maybe there's some rock stars out there that will get some good deals on those um, but for most of the economy um yeah we're seeing softening and fedex is down regulating its projections so that kind of ties in nicely
1: no that's that, that's spot on and um i agree it almost This isn't related directly to your topic, Kian, but it's been a common theme and it made me think of it when you were talking is that I think the pivot changes in the world, not necessarily with America, happen so quick now that our ability to overlay metrics on what's going to happen, things move so fast that the, the, the traditional ways that we analyze trends with economy, trends with consumer buying habits, trends in general, move way too fast for the traditional metrics and measuring models. I think we saw that, you know, I, I hounded on the roaring twenties, yep. um, you know, post pandemic. That's pretty much over. And we talked about that for twelve to eighteen months. Whole decade. And the compressed. real world Yeah, the real world, <laughs> that's exactly the real roaring twenties was a decade. Yeah. Right. And we've gone into recessions. I think we'll spike out of this thing pretty quick. But I just think that the world moves so gosh darn fast that uh, trying to base trends and give solid feedback on what's going to happen is more difficult than ever because things pivot so gosh darn fast And your example or or what you just said is a perfect example of that
0: absolutely interesting times yeah
1: yeah yeah well one thing that doesn't pivot quickly keenan is global trade this week on our annual show our listeners can rely on us every single week uh, bringing you great content, uh, forward-leaning perspective on international trade, transportation and logistics, and of course, all of that wouldn't be possible without our friends at Cap Logistics. So uh, visit caplogistics.com. And I really enjoyed this week, uh, Kenan. I think we did a hell of a job. Our, our, our um, You know, we talked about this literally while we were just about ready to go on air is when you told me your topic. So like one minute beforehand. And we jived well, they, they meshed well. And I want to thank you for being uh, a fill-in host. You did an excellent job.
0: Well, excellent. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, thanks everyone okay. for listening here today.
1: You got it. All right, we'll catch you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Global Trade this week. Bye.